Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have a friend of mine, Michael Giacoumis, a physio who at British Athletics is the Medical League for the Futures Programme and the lead of medical research and innovation. Michael is also a physio at the Centre of Health and Human Performance on Harley Street. In this episode, Michael and I will be discussing how to manage muscle injuries, a topic he is very passionate about. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to Inform Performance with me, Annie McDonald, and today's guest, Michael Giacomis, and here is today's episode. Michael Giacomis, welcome to the show, mate. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. Thanks, Andy, for having me on here. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure having seen a lot of the people that have come on the past, so I'm very honoured. Well, we speak regularly, so this is a this is a long overdue conversation that we actually record. So, uh, no, welcome to the show, buddy. Um, just to begin with, could you kind of tell everybody, you know, who you are, what you do, and maybe a little bit about your background through to today? Yeah, so um, I'm Michael G. Kumis. I currently live in uh, in London, the UK. Um, as probably people can hear, I've got an Aussie accent. So uh, I transitioned over here about four and a bit years ago. I uh, did my bachelor's in uh, in Australia, Adelaide, uh, University of South Australia. Then I went on to do my master's of um, exercise science, which is uh, really just the master's in strength and conditioning. And then really in the final stages of my master's of sports physiotherapy. So that's really where my educational background has taken me. But in terms of my journey from a career perspective, I suppose I was um, very keen uh student at uni and I really put myself in certain positions so when I came out of uni I was fortunate enough to go straight into what would be really professional sport working at Adelaide United youth team and and then moved over to Melbourne Victory and with that uh, I was staying in the academy systems there and got to work with some amazing people around that point in time both in a clinic that I used to work at but also at the at the um at the football club or soccer club for for those others um, but then following that, I did some stuff in sort of reserves team of an AFL club and then transitioned over um, to the UK where I started working in um, women's professional football, which was my first really full-time gig. And then after some time there, I transitioned and, and was lucky enough to get an opportunity at, um, in athletics, so at British Athletics here in the UK, um, which really sets and supports up the world-class performance program for our Olympic level track and field athletes. So that's primarily been my role for the last few years, but I've been fortunate enough to dabble in um, in some work with a previous guest of yours, Jade Amflick, who consults out to a number of you know NBA teams and football teams around the world. Um, so um, helped him um, and worked with him on some you know tendon monitoring stuff using the UTC. But now, really, my time spent at British Athletics and, and working at the Centre of Health and Human Performance uh, with another previous guest of yours, James Moore, um, but also um, a tutor at uh, the Health Development Performance Network, uh, where we tutor on lower limb muscle injuries. So that's cool, me in a nutshell. You know, obviously, you've got a big interest in muscle injuries. Did this start at uh, British Athletics or did this kind of uh, begin earlier in your career? I'm just kind of you know curious to what drove the passion towards that. 
I think it's just been in the sports that have been surrounded. You know, football, it's 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 pretty prevalent around in football and um, or soccer. And it's the same thing in AFL, which had experience and exposure to. Um, but again, in athletics, it's, you know, makes up two of the top three injuries that we end up seeing. So um, it, that's where the, the passion and interest in, has been around. It's probably also centered around the people that I've probably been exposed to and been, you know, um, been mentored by throughout my journey. You know, there's Craig Purdom, who's a person who's been and worked in Australian athletics for, I think it's 30 to 36 years and still doing some consultancy work for there. And, you know, James Moore is another person who's been, you know, influential in my journey. And, you know, he has had a long stint um, around athletics and and muscle injuries as well. And um, so, you know, it's a real big passion and real interest. And, you know, it's still um, an ever growing area of interest and knowledge. So, uh, that's what's driven my passion towards that area, really. No, fantastic. And f- for you, I guess now, or just you know, just to create some kind of context, why are muscle injuries a problem? You know, beyond the people's basic uh, grasp of this, what you know, can you kind of outline maybe the the broader um, side to this question? Yeah, well, I think as a problem, no matter, I suppose, what team sport or individual sport like athletics you look at, you know, muscle injuries are one of the highest incidents and or have the one of the highest incidents and prevalence across all sports, whether that's AFL in Australia, so the Australian rules football, where you know you see adductors, calves, quads, and hamstrings um, taking out four of the top six spots for the most common new injuries within a season. And even from a prevalence perspective, it mirrors the same thing. And when you look at the recurrence rate around these injuries, you know, hamstrings are around 20% in AFL and adductors are around 24%. So they're pretty significant from that perspective. And even if you look at rugby, so, you know, a world-wide uh, game, you know, it's pretty high incidence of muscle injuries and it's just behind ligament injuries as their most common type of injury that they have there. When you look at NFL, even look after what's happened after COVID and, you know, last season in the NFL, how many muscle injuries we ended up seeing. So, you know, the big world game in terms of football or soccer, you, you end up seeing that no matter what's happened over the last 20 years in our advances of knowledge and expertise um, and explosion of research, nothing's really changed in terms of the burden of those injuries within Champions League football teams, but also the re-injury incidents as well. And again, you know, we see that they are the most common type of injuries within football. Because if we look at, you know, Ekstrand did a great study, or Jan Ekstrand, who's a researcher over in Europe, did a great study within UEFA Champions League just last year, and they published their work around, you know, they looked at the 30 most common type of injuries within um, within football. And they found that muscle injuries itself, so hamstrings, quads, calves, and adductors, accounted for up to 36 to 37% of all injuries within a football team. And when they looked at the recurrence rate around these, you know, 14 to 18% was the rate with hamstrings being the most or having the highest recurrence rate in their cohort of athletes that they investigated. So when you think about it, in a single season around that, you know, if you've got five hamstring injuries, you're going to have one that goes on to re-injure. So that's six in total. And that's, you know, a roughly 110 days lost just to one type of injury. So it's pretty significant from when you actually start to look at it from that perspective. And even from, you know, we look at back at his work back in 2011, when you look at the distribution of muscle injuries, hamstrings are certainly the number one that we see in, you know, in most sports, if not all team sports, right? 
And then you've followed by adductors in football, then quadriceps, and then calves. And when we think about those types of injuries, you can then start to all of us understand, you know, where our knowledge needs to go towards in understanding them a little bit more. You know, hamstrings are primarily going to be injured in sprinting. You know, we look at someone's study like um, Ryan Timmons, who did some study in football, you know, I think it was four or five years ago, if not earlier, and demonstrated that all their reoccurrences happened in sprinting. And when you look at quadriceps, kicking is the mechanism of injury that mostly happens, followed by sprinting. And adductors, it's predominantly change of direction, followed by kicking and sprinting, whereas calves are going to be predominantly around running. And in their research and what you see is that muscle injuries occur more often in matches than in training. And then the hamstrings are or account for a disproportionate amount in games compared to any other injuries of the other muscle injuries, that is, um, when you compare match versus training. And I think it's like something like nine times more common or um, or nine times higher risk in matches than in, in training. And so therefore, you've got to start to ask yourself the question of like, why does this end up being the case? And I'm sure that there's many, many, many reasons. We know that in your elite sport, you know it's multifactorial. It could be so many factors, but one we have to sometimes question ourselves is, is it because we're not conditioning the local tissue to handle what it's being asked to do? And I think this relates to some of the things that we hear around the acute conic ratios. And I know obviously that's taken a big hit, but nonetheless, thinking about load is obviously important and the running volumes that we utilize, whether it be in calves. But if we're thinking about hamstrings and the higher incidence of matches, well, is it around high-speed running? And I think it's going to be fascinating over the next couple of years to see, is there a difference uh, in terms of a closing of the gap as our understanding and appreciation for, you know, the idea around sprinting often enough um, and, you know, at a high enough intensity to have a productive ef- effect um, against muscle injuries. So I think it's going to be an interesting area to look out for um, and see whether the, the research demonstrates an improvement in that and closing the gap between matches and training as our I suppose, appreciation for high-speed exposure um, has started to evolve. And you look at people like Robin Sadler from Manchester United, who's really pushed that idea in team sports, um, you know, utilizing his term speed vaccine. So I think, you know, those are the sorts of things and the problem that we see across many, many sports. But it goes on beyond this, even more so from an economic burden for football clubs, right? You know, you think about what's happened this year. Everyone wants to keep costs down in the last 12 months. But, you know, there's been studies showing that even in just a European football team, one injury can cost 280,000 euros. And obviously that's going to fluctuate depending on what club you're at and, and I suppose the wages that are paid out. But, you know, just for a hamstrings in a year, that's going to be about 1.5 million euros lost just to, you know, um, these types of injuries. And even if we think from a perspective what's happened to Liverpool in the last 12 months, going from Premier League champions to, I suppose, coming third and having to work really, really hard to make the Champions League spot, you know, look at their their squad. It got riddled by injuries, not just muscle injuries, but injuries itself. And so we know that, you know, injuries to your key players are going to have a massive impact on, you know, the, the quality of the team, how consistent your team is out there. But also, you know, research has started to show that, you know, some form of high amount of days lost. So they, I think it was around 134 days, if my memory serves me right, ended up resulting in one point loss. And, you know, as soon as you start to go in the high 200s, early 300 days loss for injuries, then that can sometimes equate to a whole position lost within the table. 
So I think reality becomes when we start to look at the problem around muscle injuries, we know it's really, really common, right? Especially if we look at football, you know, one in every three injuries that they're going to see or you see in football and soccer is going to be a muscle injury in itself. And we see the numbers around higher, having higher recurrence rates. Um, and you know, the question becomes whether we're appropriately conditioning the individuals and the local tissue to start to handle what people are being asked to do. So I think that's where really, in my mind at least, where we start to evaluate the problem of muscle injuries. Yeah, mate. And within that, you you know, you mentioned uh, high-speed running for hamstrings, and I think you know we're fairly familiar with that anecdotally or commonly as an example. Um, how do you or do you have any examples for maybe the equivalents for say quads, adductors, or or calves? Is there any other? You know, we always talk about high-speed running as a hamstring protector. How do you kind of view that same um, ideology for different muscles? I think it's, in, in my opinion, I think it becomes a little bit similar, you know, and you also have to look at the mechanisms of injury that's, uh, you know, that's occurring for these. And that's probably one key part. So, you know, if we think, as I talked before, hamstrings are predominantly a, a sprinting based injury, predominantly, obviously, it's not the only way to injure your hamstrings, but understanding sprinting makes you understand hamstring injuries to some degree. And it's the same thing when we look at other injuries, understanding, you know, kicking makes you understand quadricep injuries. So it's not just about sprinting in those type of injuries. It may be kicking volumes as long as well as, I suppose, sprinting as a protective mechanism and getting, you know, maintaining some form, form, sorry, some form of, I suppose, kicking exposure. And you see, and you've heard those injuries can occur a little bit more frequently in pre-season periods of time. So, you know, maintaining some kicking volumes either in the off season or, or utilizing different sorts of balls. So, lighter balls, smaller balls to sort of graduate people back into that sort of process for, for the preseason. So those are sorts of ideas from there. But, you know, when we look at adductors, you know, it's mainly change of direction and kicking. So again, the kicking exposure, but, you know, you've got to then understand change of direction biomechanics and also the influence of the other synergists and the whole kinetic chain of how that starts to offload the adductors as well so you know there's many parts to that sort of question when you start to look at the other muscles because you know they're going to have different um injury profiles around it and different mechanisms of injuries and understanding the mechanisms of injury um and the biomechanics around that helps to understand what you may need to do to reduce those types of injuries as well yeah and i think this is probably feeding pretty well into this one mate but uh you know why do you think muscle injuries occur i think this is something that probably gets a lot of attention in the research uh all the time and i just want to kind of see how you navigate through this well i think it touches on what we discussed before around load you know for you know muscle injury to occur it usually goes beyond its value point we've exceeded its capacity and for us to go beyond that value point, we usually require an excessive level of strain. And for there to be an excessive level of strain, it usually requires an excessive level of stress. And usually that comes in a concentrated zone. And that's going to be discussed as tensile stress on that tissue. And now this information isn't new. This is coming from Garrett's work back in the 90s. And, you know, by understanding that there needs to be stress on that tissue, we can all start and start to think about, well, what's going to increase the stress, and therefore strain on that tissue. And I think it centers around four key areas, in my opinion. And the first one really is around, does that muscle or that local tissue have enough force generating capacity, endurance or metabolic capacity, or other neuromuscular qualities that will help protect it? 
right? Number two is, does the synergist around the area lack in the same physical qualities or the physical qualities that they need in order to you know, work efficiently and effectively? And therefore, if they don't have those things, does it increase the demand on the local tissue or that injured muscle? Now, there becomes a bit of a paradox in this situation where you know the elite athletes often injure, at least what I've seen more so recently, is that they injure where they're, they're strongest. You know, it becomes a bit of a double-edged sword where, you know, elite athletes are great compensators. You know, they learn to move in certain ways that allow them to do what they need to do. But the issue arises when they start to become fatigued or when they're in a vulnerable state where they start to utilize, you know, their strongest attributes. And we've had a number of injuries now and athletes who, when you start to test them and profile them, They've got incredibly strong uh, hamstrings, for instance, if you take hamstring injuries. And it starts to demonstrate that they're actually probably getting injured where they are strongest. So this is where sort of that paradox sort of comes around. But, you know, when we think about the third reason, it's around, you know, the joint. You know, we know joints regulate muscle function through their joint receptors and the information that gets sent to the nervous system. and, you know, joints don't have to be pathological. You can have silent pathology or you can have dysfunction around the joint that alters the muscle function. And the last one is around the nervous system. You know, muscles will increase their tone in order to reduce the stress on an irritated or inflamed nerve. And therefore, that will alter muscle function and muscle tone. So it's these four key areas that I think start to make you think and I suppose audit, you know, why has that muscle gotten injured? You know, there's a lot being talked about again around, you know, load management, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the basic form is that we've exceeded its capacity. We've gone beyond its failure point, And therefore, we need to think about what's increased that stress on that tissue. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned him earlier. We, of course, had James Moore on for a hamstring special um, earlier in the year in which he discussed lots of detail around the different muscle injury classifications that are out there. Um you know, there are obviously a number of these different classifications that are used to describe the pathology of muscle injuries. Which one do you personally use, maybe in the, the environment you work in now, and, and why is that important? Well, in the setting that I'm in, you know, we use the classification system called the BAMIC system, which is just the British Athletics Muscle Injury Classification. And that was really developed by Noel Pollock and Dr. Noel Pollock and co, you know, close to 10 years ago. And they really developed this on the back of, you know, looking at their injury stats and identifying certain injuries, you know, were associated with a lot higher re-injury risks. So what they identified is where the injury really occurred within that muscle. And they built this system where you could see that, you know, injuries could occur to the myofascia, so the surrounding of that muscle, the muscular tendinous junction, which we often associate with muscle injuries, or to the tendon itself. And that could be the intramuscular tendon or the free proximal tendon if we're thinking about hamstrings. And for some listeners, intramuscular tendon injuries may be something slightly new, but there is a tendon that transverses and is continuous with free tendons that transverses through the muscle, but it's got a slightly different structure and therefore slightly different function. And it it was these injuries that they started to see significantly higher rates of re-injury, up to 60%. You know, and our average at that point in time was around 20%. And what they did over this period of time was they changed the rehab processes 
you know, they really identify that tendon tissue takes longer to heal. And we know that. So they change that process, especially in the like early to intermediate phases. Um, and it changed a lot of our outcomes. You know, we look, just published a paper this year demonstrating that our re-injury rates are now down to 2.5% when we take into consideration the pathology. You know, we've got 0% of re-injuries in the last five to six years of these injuries that used to be at 60%, so these intramuscular tendons. And, you know, these intramuscular tendon is slightly different to that free proximal tendon where we know that, you know, free tendons are there to transfer force from the muscle to the joint and produce movement. But what we've found throughout the years, and when you look at the research, is that the intramuscular tendon's function is to predominantly absorb energy. So as we start to move quicker, we know that tissue is viscoelastic, and therefore it's going to be placing a bigger demand on the non-contractile tissue, such as tendon tissue. And we've seen this from, you know, guys, I think it was Roberts and Azizi back in, you know, I think 2011 or 2010, may have been. Um, so, you know, when we think about elite level athletes, okay, we know that they're going to be producing more force because they can achieve usually higher speeds, whether it's in a team sport athlete or an elite level sprinter. But also the rate of loading starts to become an important part. We know that that is also an increase in exponential you know, rate of loading, so body weights per second. You know, If we look at even, let's say, the car, for instance, we know as we start to move in through speed, going from five, seven to nine meters per second, the rate of loading drastically increases at you know, nearly an exponential rate. So you know, it's going to be placing a significantly greater demand on that intramuscular tendon. And therefore, it's probably more important when we start to consider the elite level population. And you know, when we classify these injuries in this place, we know that whether it be myofascia, muscular tendinous junction, or tendon tissue, we may all of a sudden start to think about how aggressive we can be. Now, it helps to drive the discussion around risk. You, know, you can push an intramuscular tendon if you really wanted to, but the risk is higher for re-injury rates, right? So it's not only about, no, we don't do anything in those first you know, 10 days. It's just about, well, if we want to reduce the re-injury risk, well, this is what we pray need to, this is what we may need to start to consider, right? So, you know, on my fashion injuries, we may start to get them doing coordination-based movements. So, you know, drills and dribbles, et cetera, might be in the first, you know, one to two days, but that might be delayed when we're thinking about muscular tendonous junction or tenderness injuries as well. So that's where the classification sort of system comes in and how it influences, but it's not anything new. Askling talked about this stuff back in the mid 2000s where he demonstrated in his Swedish sprinters actually that you know injuries that involved the tendon and especially the proximal tendon of the hamstrings took a lot, lot longer to return to pre-injury levels. And any injury that started to incorporate more of the uh, tendon or towards that proximal tendon, so let's say the intramuscular tendon and the areas where it's larger, again, took longer, but not as long as that free proximal tendon. So that's the information and how it influences and has an effect on our thought process as we move forward. Yeah, just, um, I guess, sort of anecdotally and from your environment, do you ever see that the the style of the, say, track sprinter makes difference to what type of hamstring injury they pick up? You know, like a a sprinter that's more reliant on high force creation, uh, do they tend to get more of like kind of that muscle belly type hamstring injury? Or do you see that maybe the more springy elastic sprinters pick up more fascial injuries? Is there ever kind of a correlation between sprint style and then the sort of structural type of injury they get? 
I think that's that's a great question. I'm not so sure that I can probably answer that one in this case, but you can potentially hypothesize that there is, right? You know, those more elastic ones rely on it. But, you know, I think that all injuries are actually, like in some aspects, non-contractile tissue in nature. So they don't probably truly involve, or the majority at least in my opinion, don't involve true muscle fiber disruption even those muscular tendon disjunction ones where I think it's a cleaving away of the, the muscle from the actual tendon um, or the muscular tendon disjunction region. Um, and therefore, it's a non-contractile tissue injury. So, you know, I don't think you can just say that, you know, these injuries, because they're an individual relies on, on their um, elasticity more that they're going to get more myofascial or tendon-based injuries um, because I think all of them involve fascial or non-contractile tissue in nature. Um, but, you know, it is interesting now that we're seeing some, you know, back in, I think, you know, mid-2000s, Carl Askling, who's a um, researcher in hamstrings in, in Sweden, you know, demonstrated the majority of, you know, injuries recurred in the proximal segment of biceps femme, whereas our probably research is starting to suggest that it's more often occurring towards a distal segment. Um, and I wonder if that's just regarding, you know, the limb velocities that these sprinters reach and the larger demands than distally. Um that it's going to be placing on the hamstrings. So, you know, it is fascinating to see potentially in at least our cohort um, where the injury distribution is. You know, biceps femur is still definitely the most prevalent one. I think ours data is around 80% and above, um, uh, you know, around biceps femur. And that's pretty common across most sports, I would say, these days. And when you're thinking about muscle injuries, what are the kind of the key principles and factors that you consider, uh, I guess, uh, during the rehab process and, and I guess also feel free to add in kind of profiling if that helps as well. Uh, that's a really good question, actually. And I probably look at that question as like, what are the principles and factors? What are the things that influence my thought process during rehabilitation? And I think the first and foremost part is look at the individual in front of you. you know, look at N equals one. And, you know, I, I encourage people to move away from the group averages, the norms, and what other athletes are able to achieve in that group. But look at the person in front because ultimately everyone's got a slightly different morphology. They've got different attributes, different heights, weights that can influence what you need to achieve during that rehabilitation. You know, the morphology of an individual will change the moment arms of muscles and therefore change the intramuscular demands. We know, let's take Rec Femme, for instance, you know, if someone's got um, an anti-torsioned hip, that's going to change and reduce the moment arm of rectus femoris and may require them to produce more force within the muscle and maybe place them at a higher demand. And therefore, we need to, to compensate in certain cases for that where they need to be above what our normal or average or what we would want to normally see. So those are the sorts of things that we need to consider, and their biomechanics will influence that as well. You know, someone, again, who's got an anti-torsion hit may place greater rotational demands um, around the knee, and therefore a biceps femme will need to work harder. So again, the, f- <laughs> the structure and the morphology of an individual influences that thought process, and I really encourage the people to think about N equals one. And obviously, we talked a lot about pathology before and how that is a factor that influences the thought processes and how aggressive we can be or what are the risks that we need to think about as we move forward. You know, the other part, and we've touched on this throughout a little bit, was around the biomechanics and the mechanism of injury. 
understanding the movement that's related to that injury is really, really important because that helps to give you an understand around the demands placed on that tissue, whether that be sprinting for bicep, uh, you know, for hamstrings or, like I said, kicking for quadriceps. And that brings in all of a sudden the structure and the function of that muscle and the surrounding synergists. And that really centers around functional anatomy and the work that Lieber's done around this area. So, you know, thinking about soleus and, and calf injuries, we know that the soleus has got one of the largest physiological cross-sectional areas and therefore makes it have the highest potential for the largest amount of force production. But also at the same point in time, we're thinking about its um, metabolism. It, it's got, you know, the, up to 80% of slow twitch muscle fibers and therefore is one of the most aerobic base muscles. So we need to consider that during our rehabilitation process. And if we look at rec femme, you know, that's practically a jack of all trades when you start to compare it to other um, muscles transversing uh, and having similar functions around the hip and the knee. So, you know, just taking consideration those factors allows us to be a little bit different and intricate around the rehabilitation process. But another principle around this point in time is the force length curve, because I think that then allows you to think about, well, where am I going to start to work this muscle, whether it be inner range, mid-range, outer range, to influence the, uh, I suppose, adaptations that you're trying to achieve or whether you need to constrain the forces that that muscle is producing. You know, early days, you may want to just load it in inner range because you want some force going through that muscle, but, you know, you want to constrain how much force because it's going to be mechanically inefficient. But if I all of a sudden want to start to adapt some of the tendon or the non-contractile tissue, I need to maybe think about loading it in outer range. So that's a principle that I think is really important to understand and, and utilize during the rehabilitation process. But, you know, I go through a bit of an auditing process to ensure that the tissue or the muscle has the appropriate qualities. You know, it's really centered around five key areas around does the tissue or the muscle have the metabolic capacity or endurance? Does it have the force and strength? Have we trained it at length and therefore put enough strain through that tissue and adapted the non-contractile tissue? And, you know, does it have the ability to produce force rapidly, so rate of force development properties? And also the last one's around coordination. Have we you know, built intermuscular coordination and got the whole system working effectively and you know, that looking at you know, movement patterns and um, how synergists work together with the muscle? So it's those five key areas, endurance, strength, length, speed, and coordination that are influential in that sort of thought process at least. Sometimes you might not need to train too much of one aspect versus the others, but at least you can work through those parts. Because if we take hamstrings as an example, there's many literature out there that actually supports all these five key areas. If you think about endurance, you know, Freckleton back in Australia demonstrated in, I think it was really recreational Australian rules football players, that minimum of 25 reps on a hamstring bridge was key in reducing risk. You know, in elite level population, we're looking at a 30 as a minimum standard. So again, we've got to change our benchmarks depending on the population that we're working with. But when we look at force and strength, well, you know, you've got lots of research from AFL, football and A-League, and then also rugby from, you know, the group at ACU, where, you know, let's take Timmons work in football, who demonstrated 337 Newtons on the Nord board was their minimum threshold. Now, you don't have to use that information there. You can go to muscle modeling work that's demonstrated that the force that the hamstrings produce when that speed, you know, is nine times your body weight when you're running at nine meters per second. And when you look at it, what it might be around 11 meters per second, the estimated amount is around 14.4 times your body weight. 
So if we're talking about an 80 kilogram sprinter, you know, he's producing over 11,000 newtons through his hamstrings when he's running at that type of speed. And, you know, by understanding the moment arms around hamstrings and the testings that you do in limb lengths, you can start to use certain strength diagnostic tests to help influence what you're trying to probably see to help them reduce their risk. So in that same individual, we may want to see them hit 800 newtons on an isometric um, rig when we're looking at hamstrings. So those are the sorts of things that you can start to use. But when we're looking at strain and length, well, you know, you know both um, Gisela, I think her name is, Sol, and David Opar have demonstrated that those who have had a previous hamstring injury have a reduction in their peak torque angle during hamstring testing. And, you know, some part of me thinks that is that the inability or the integrity of the non-contractile tissue to work at those longer lengths? And therefore, are we protecting that area? So that's where we think we need to put that tissue under strain and length to cause adaptations and get it, you know, improving its viscoelastic properties as well. So when we look at rate of force development, David Opar showed again in his work that, you know, rate of force development and the impulse around hamstrings was reduced in those that had a previous injury. So that's an important part to consider. And also we're finally up to coordination where Matt Cameron, who was the head physio for Sydney Swans for a long, long time in AFL, you know, looked and did his PhD around hamstrings, demonstrated joint position sense. So spatial awareness was an important factor when we're thinking about holistic hamstring um, injury reduction and, and rehabilitation. But also Schumann's work around intermuscular coordination between your semi-tan and your biceps fem are really important considerations again. So it's working through that sort of process of thinking, well, what's the goal that I'm trying to achieve or the adaptation I'm trying to achieve, whether that be force, rate of force development coordination, and then all of a sudden picking the right exercises that influence that. It's not the exercise that you start with. It's the adaptation that you're trying to achieve. And then you choose the exercise that works for that, but also works for the individual. So to achieve you know, improving someone's strength or force capability, you might just choose a simple prone leg curl. If you're trying to improve um, and work that muscle at high levels of strain, well, you might choose um, a split leg RDL or a split leg deadlift. But if you're thinking about coordination, again, then you've got your lots of things, you know, running drills, plyometrics, etc. It gives you a lot to work from, but starting with the goal in mind helps you achieve that. So again, we think about it starting with N equals one. Think about the pathology. Think about the biomechanics and that mechanisms of injury, which will help you to understand the pathology a bit better. And then that leads onto the function and structure of that muscle. And then also the other areas, like we said, endurance, strength, length, speed, and coordination. So those are the factors, at least in my head and the principles that start to influence my thought process or my thought process around rehabilitation. And how, how do you kind of apply these principles, mate? Do you have like a, a case study uh, or any examples that you c- that can kind of link all these ideas together as a single narrative? Or Yeah, I've got a case study, but I think it starts for me at least from having a bit of a framework because I think by having a framework, you can apply, you know, the aspects that we've talked about and the principles. Um, and that can then give you really a solution to any muscle injury that you work through. And this is where it allows your own sort of development and and thought process around it and to apply it within your own context in your own situation. I think that's really important to understand. So, you know, 
if I start from a framework, James Moore and I developed something um, about just over a year ago, and he was leading on a hamstring project for the NFL, and we developed a sort of a seven-stage project, oh, well, seven-stage framework, sorry, um, around around muscle injuries, and it can really be applied across all muscle injuries of the lower limb, I think, in my mind. And that centers around, you know, getting early management right, putting some early loading through the area, you know, getting some capacity and peak force through that tissue, putting some strain and then going through a process of getting someone back to return to running and, you know, the rate of loading of that tissue comes incorporation in there, then return to sprinting and ultimately returning to performance. So if we think about a case study for me and, you know, the one that really comes to my mind is one more so recently around a quadricep injury. And we think about um, a 100-meter sprinter who he's got PB, I think, of 9.98 seconds. And he ended up injuring himself during a race um, last year. And uh, he ended up having pretty significant injury where he had a 3C, so uh, more than 50% cross-sectional area involved of both his indirect and direct tendon. And that's the free tendon of his rectus femoris. And there was also a split between these two tendons at their conjoining section. So a significant injury. And when we think about going through those stages and we think about you know early management, well, the principle around that is really around we're trying to protect that healing tissue. And it's that first 40 hours that become really important because I think it helps to set up the whole rehab period. You know, you're looking to protect that injured site by putting it in shortened position. So for us, we had, you know, encouraged him to sit up and have his legs straight so he's in you know long sitting to keep that quad in an inner range position so that's that principle around force length curve you know we wanted to use compression and cryotherapy to help reduce pain and swelling in order to minimize the negative neuromuscular effects that might occur because of these factors around swelling and pain you know this phase is also going to be dependent on what tissues involved because like we said before in the pathology each tissue is going to have different regeneration mechanisms so that becomes an influencing part. And for our tenant, we needed to extend that period of time out. You know, immobilizing is important because it helps to reduce the scar tissue size as well. And you know, obviously cryotherapy or using game ready or ice, you know, it helps to reduce muscle tone and reduce the pain. And you know, obviously we know about compression, right? Helps to reduce excessive swelling. And you know, the aim is again to reduce the size of the hematoma. For some individuals, and we didn't in this one, we may start to look at biological therapies, but that's obviously more from our doctor side. But you know, the anecdotal use of PRP or trauma activation, as we hear across Europe, can be utilized in this period of time as well. So, you know, this brings us really to the stage two when we thought about when do we start to load this individual? We know that we need to load individuals relatively early, right? But in safe manners. We've got a tendon-based injury here, so we needed to be mindful of that. So, you know, we thought after that first 48 hours, well, we know we're still going to have some residual swelling and inflammation. You know, we know that this individual's reduced their movement, so they're going to have some motor unit inhibition and potentially ready to start to go down a um, catabolic process where they're going to get some muscle atrophy. So, you know, stage two is really trying to address these. So, you know, we're trying to optimize the healing environment and help to modulate or reduce their pain. And we might use some adjunctive loadings to help to achieve this. So, you know, examples that we use was blood flow restriction because that can help to optimize the healing environment. We know it's been shown in tendons where by you know, improving the chemistry around the area, we can improve the tensile strength of that tendon quicker. You know, It also helps to reduce individuals' pain levels. That's been started to show with exercise as well and blood flow restriction. But also we can start to use a reduced level of intensity with exercise when we've got blood flow on. 
you know, we've got neuromuscular stimulation, so your complexes, which help to you know, fight against neuromuscular inhibition. And also we've got this idea and this principle around lateral force transmission, which you know, helps to load that tissue in a different plane as force is therefore transmitted from you know, your synergists, so your adductors, your abductors in this place, or in this case, to the surrounding muscles and that being our rectus femoris. And it helps to load across and perpendicular to the line of action. So if you think about if we load in the sagittal plane for a quad, we're obviously doing leg extensions or hip flexion. That might pull the stumps or the healing stumps away from each other. Where if we load it perpendicular and use the synergist and load in the coronal plane, we can start to influence that area and promote some regeneration processes through mechanotransduction. And if people are familiar with Sherry and Betts program, so that PATS program, that's in some aspects what they did. They did a lot of grapevine work, um, sidestepping things in the coronal plane and therefore minimized the tension and the tensile loads placed on the injured tissue. So for us, we use blood flow restriction and complex at the same point in time because we know that can have an effect on you know, muscle hypertrophy. You know, we loaded him in inner range again because we were trying to protect and constrain the forces or the intramuscular forces being produced by that muscle. You know, in that lateral force transmission idea, we did a lot of hip abduction and adduction exercises, starting in flexion first and foremost. So again, a shortened range, and we progressed out to mid-range positions. So just in standing, but you know, we knew we weren't putting high amounts of force through that area, but we were able to get some loading through it. You know, and depending on how big the injury is, right, and how much time it's going to return or take to return to play. You know, it might present you an opportunity to address some of the contributing factors. And we had that opportunity to do this in this case. So we addressed his adduction force. We looked at his calf complex as well, because we know that that's got a symbiotic relationship with the hip and the hip musculature. We looked at loading his psoas in, in the coronal plane as it controls lateral flexion away. So we can load that early without affecting too much on that rectus femoris. And this takes us up to stage three, really around improving the strength qualities but also improving its endurance capabilities. So again, around improving its force and metabolic capacity, which is again, through that auditing system that we had before. So we started to, you know, load him in quarter, uh, quarter, like quarter squat depth, you know, but we did high volume work, five sets of 15 at 160 kilograms. In order to stress test it and put high amounts of force through that tissue, we did low box step ups. And he did five sets of three reps at 185 kilograms. So huge amounts of load, right? And this is what we try to utilize and push forward during this period of time. Now, stage four really comes around, can we put strain through that tissue? We know we've got a tendon-based injury and we we're fortunate enough to be able to MRI it throughout the period of time. And we could seal it at you know, the eight, nine week mark that that tendon, there was continuation between it now, right? But it was showing remodeling processes was still going on. So it was a nice time for us to adapt that tendon and prove its viscoelastic properties and stiffness and therefore, we started to look to put it in length and in tension, right? You know, the split between those two areas hadn't quite healed yet, but there was some granulation tissue and scar tissue, which we actually wanted to promote more of that so that they would stick together. So we used eccentrics because that can help some of the adhesion molecules and the pathways around that and upregulate that as well there. But we also know that loading it at length in isometric manners can help to improve the stiffness qualities of tendons right? But also having high forces. So we went for, you know, super maximal eccentrics in a split leg or split stance position. So we had his, uh, we did a front squat, uh, front foot elevated position and loaded that back leg through there. You know, we did prone 
um, leg extensions. So laying on your stomach, hip in a slightly degree of extension, and also deep knee flexion to start to load that non-contractile tissue and that tendon. And, you know, this starts to take us into stage five where it's around, you know, returning that individual back to some form of running and, and the, thinking about the rate of lowering. So you can start to use your gym-based exercises to work that individual across that force velocity spectrum. So thinking about power-based movements. So, you know, that can either be in the gym or on the track as well. So we can, you know, start to go through dribbles, um, you know, doing plyometrics and then progressing him forward from that manner. You know, for us, we know that the loading rate of rectus femoris can be up to as high as 116 body weights per second when they're running at nine meters per second. So we've got to bridge that gap somehow. So we did a lot of plyometrics or split stunts, uh, squat jumps and things like that. We would even fatigue his contractile elements through a bit of a circuit. So to get him, you know, absolutely gassed and blowing and then ask him to do plyometric work because that would start to put a higher demand on that tendon tissue and start to really cause some adaptations around there. You know, like I said, you know, throughout the whole process, you can start coordination quite early around walking drills. But, you know, we started to progress this individual through, you know, your normal mat drills such as your Abe skips and B skips, then moved them on to backwards running because we can start to increase the range of motion that they're working at, but reduce the angular velocities of their thigh and shank. So it's a nice way of exposing them to a little bit of increased intensity and getting that intermuscular coordination going on and proximal distal sequencing but also keeping him in a safe position and a nice progression forward. And like I said, we use plyometric progressions, you know, your pogos, your counter movement jumps and drop jumps, et cetera, like that. That would be a nice way to progress us forward in the rate of loading. And obviously stage six is around, you know, returning that individual back to sprinting. We know that nothing can replicate the task of sprinting and the neuromuscular demands associated with it apart from sprinting itself. So uh, Andy, like stage six is just an extension of, you know, all the preceding stages beforehand. And I think this is where it incorporates a lot more of the technical model of the coach. And that's a really important part about this part where, you know, throughout the time there was probably a fluctuation and, and a transition period through here is as the coach started to be a lot more involved, you know, the coach was involved during this gym sessions and, and helping us to guide some direction around that and the programming. But, you know, in stage five and six, he started to become more influential and have a lot more of a bigger presence. And it was a great team effort with other members of the staff and, and being involved through here. And, you know, it allowed us to, you know, help this individual move towards obviously the ultimate stage of getting back someone to performance. And, you know, before a few weeks ago, you know, it would have been interesting to say, I don't know where he's going to be. Obviously, it's an important year, Tokyo 2021. Um, but it it is really nice to see that, through having a team effort and working through a framework and a process, you know, this individual ran their quickest time you know, since three and a half years ago. And that was this early in the season. So it's nice to see that through the hard work of the athlete first and foremost, and the work that we've been able to put together as a team, we've hopefully allowed this individual to be in a really nice spot to push forward for the rest of the season. And you know, time will tell what happens when we get to Tokyo 2021 uh, and fingers crossed for them. So like I said, having a framework is a nice way of going about it because it allows you to implement different principles at different times, different aspects of the information that we talked about. Um, you know, we talked about N equals one, looking at the contributing factors for this individual. We talked about the force length curve and where that comes in. Talked about the auditing process, started with 
capacity to force, to strain, you know, coordination and rate of force development and aspects like that. Um, and obviously, you know, it, it, we haven't been having the opportunity to go into extreme detail on specific rec femme, but, you know, a functional anatomy was playing a part in how we thought about that area and the biomechanics of sprinting played a massive part. So, yeah, hopefully people can see, you know, how you can use the aspects that we talked about within a framework um, and apply it to hopefully any situation that you find yourself in when you're rehabbing a muscle injury of the low limb. Yeah, mate, there's some fantastic detail in there. So um, that, that was excellent. I think people will probably enjoy playing that back and uh, stealing what they can from it at the same time. So no, I appreciate that a lot. Um, I'm just aware of time, mate. Where's the, where's the best place for people to follow you? And I, I know you've got articles always coming out and courses and things like that. What, what's going on in your world at the moment? Well, I think if people really, from a research perspective, there's been a few articles that we put out um, from British Athletics predominantly. Um, so you can go uh, to ResearchGate and they uh, should be all readily available there, at least requested. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. So it's Twitter's at least um, at Mick G. Kumis, um, G-I-A-K-U-M-I-S is my last name. And I have a website called mgperformancehealth.com. So um, if anyone wants to go there, that's probably a way to keep up to date with any of the courses that we do. Um, we run a muscle injury course, James Moore and I. Um, I consult out of um, CHHP, which is in um, London, Harley Street. We run a hip and groin clinic and a muscle injury clinic there and you know, often um, you know, take on referrals from footballers or whatever it might be or, or even athletes from whatever pathway. So uh, that's those are the sorts of places from a clinical aspect you can reach out or keep up to date with what's going on. So, um, no, it's been great to, to chat to you, Andy, even though it's probably me doing more of the talking. So unfortunately, but, um, it's been, uh, it's been thoroughly enjoyable at least in finally getting this together. No, mate, thank you for coming on. And, um, yeah, thanks for your time. A big thanks to Michael for coming on today's episode of the informed performance podcast. Head over to our website, informperformance.com, for show notes, to contact us, or to read articles from people within our industry. Also, you can find us at Instagram, at informperformance, or on Twitter, at informpod. For now, thanks for listening to today's episode. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.